Welcome back to the 93rd episode of the Brew Theology Podcast, where Jersey Brew Theology continues the conversation with Dr. Katherine Keller. Part two, Dr. Katherine Keller is into process theology. She is a professor at Drew Seminary University up in Madison, New Jersey. And if you like this episode, do us a pretty big favor. Just go to iTunes. All you got to do, five minutes out of your day. Give a little five-star review. That'd be nice. And then review it. And here's what you do. You just share that love online. We are at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram. Perhaps you just take a picture of yourself, a little selfie, if you will, with your earbuds on at the gym, listening to the Brew Theology podcast. We're also at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, the website, brewtheology.org, where you can find out how you can be a partner and a sponsor. If you live in Denver, Colorado, Greeley, Colorado, Atlanta, New Jersey, Winston-Salem, Jacksonville, Florida, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We have chapters there. And if you're wondering why your city or town or suburb does not have a chapter, well, that's because you and your friends haven't started one yet. So uh, email us, ryan at brewtheology.org, along with Janelle at brewtheology.org, and we can get you started. All right, everybody, peace, and we will see you soon. You were wanting to come back in. Yeah, um, so it's interesting because... uh... When you made a you made a comment about how there's this working assumption that the mystery people that that's kind of like the given, and I think about how um, that may be the given for folks that are in power, you know, monopolizing mm-hmm. and perpetuating this idea. Although those in power do know God is a mystery, He's a, you know, there's you can't right. put a finite capture. Those that are um, in have the responsibility of leveraging these the, these kind of messages to the masses are repackaging it in ways that do give an absolute spin on mis, you know the mystery of God. So what would you say to those <laughs> that do that? I think you really have to insistently distinguish between mystery and mystification. There's such a long tradition of saying it's a mystery. Don't question the authority of the church. <laughs> you can't understand this. In fact, it took a reformation and all the violence that that tragically unleashed just to like have the scripture available in your own languages as opposed to just in Latin. You know, just to have that much, that much accessibility and 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 communication. Um, because there's a form of mystification that really supports authority and that does not encourage great learning. The kind of mystery that I think we find, might find vibrant and that I read in someone amazingly learned like Kuza is the opposite of that. It's because you're in touch with the mystery that you keep learning. It's because you, you know what it is you don't know that you keep discovering more. If you think you already know it all, you're not going to learn a darn thing. This is true. Who is it? It's Socrates, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and Kuzo quotes him. Yeah, on that. And re- now we can quote we can quote uh, John Wheeler, who was really, I guess, the last great quantum physicist who died a few years ago. He was quantum physicist at, at Princeton, but he has that famous statement, which is uh, we. We we are an, we live on an island of of knowledge surrounded by a sea of ignorance, and the more our knowledge expands, 
the greater are the shorelines of our ignorance. Mm. Isn't that interesting? That's, 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 real. that's great image. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it pushes right against the know-it-alls of religion and politics and of economics. Who are some of your uh, influences today uh, that are pushing the boundaries of theology that you see making huge influences and new strides? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm just thinking of our, our own area here. Very excited by the work of John Tatamanil at Union, who's doing comparative theology. And he's doing comparative theology as a Christian theologian, but who is deeply involved in Hinduism and in the last several years in Buddhism. And his book that will really get at that, uh, which is circling the elephant, you know, that old elephant where each person, <laughs> blind person just catches one part, uh, will be out. Uh, in a few months. Um, so I'm excited about his work. I'm. Can you say his name John. again? Hmm? John? Tatamanil. T H A T A M I N I L. Yep. I'm Googling and T H A T A M A N I L. But I want you to wait for his next book. His first book it, it was too dissertation y. Um, I, I think. Uh, I am truly dependent on the work of Laurel Schneider, uh, who does feminist theology with a queer edge. Um, she's at Vanderbilt. We've done some writing together. We co-edited a book together. But Laurel Schneider, uh, and that is a book called Beyond Monotheism. And by that, she just means getting into, getting into the rich plurality that is Trinitarian. She goes back very, very respectfully to Tertullian, who was the first to really articulate the Christian Trinity. She treats him as what he is, which is an African theologian. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and, and I think she's doing, she's doing amazing work now and uh, that will be out soon on, on, uh, on uh, what's the name I think is going to be Promiscuous Incarnations. <laughs> Sounds like intercarnations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there will be a little, a little, re, a little reverb. Um, I think if you're interested in the scientific edge of, of theology with a good process theological cast, uh, the works of Philip Clayton uh, are often very brilliant and accessible. Uh, Lynn Tonstadt's work, this is a book that is forthcoming, uh, will be really accessible, in a but again, I don't like accessible that's condescending, but accessible that's, that's, uh, that's really the serious thought of the author. Lynn Tonstadt, and it, it's going to be just called Queer Theology, and there's a way that, that now LGBTQ uh, thinking is, is really affecting some of the deeper questions of theology in her work. She's not, she's not just doing sexual politics, but she's interested, I mean, she's very doctrinally grounded. She's much more orthodox than I am, actually. That's, she teaches at Yale. Uh, you have to be really orthodox. To, 
<laughs> at Yale Divinity School. But uh, but but I love the way she works with the classical doctrines. Um, and Kathy Tanner, likewise at at Yale, uh, has a has a lot of, of work on 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 politics and, and theology. Very Christocentric um, feminist work. But she's her the book that will be forthcoming. Sorry, you asked about the cutting edge, so I'm thinking of manuscripts I've been reading of, of friends. Um, is is going to it's her Gifford lectures from Scotland, and it's going to be on 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 uh, on the financialization of the world. So it's, she she spent years immersing herself ugh, in in the literature of finance and becoming really expert economically to try to be able to really name, analyze, and expose uh, what it is we're, we're in the thrall of, this kind of economics that, that, uh, that, doesn't, that finally doesn't even need to produce anything. You know, just money upon money upon money. Abstractions upon abstractions. This is what Whitehead calls the fallacy of misplaced concretion. That is, you mistake an abstraction for the concrete. My advisor had written the first major book on economics and theology called For the Common Good in 1989, and he, he looked at it in terms of... These, but there are several uh, shorter versions of that book that are very accessible that look at, at how this particular form of neoliberal late capitalism is, is very dangerous um, for the planetary future. I think there are a whole bunch of others I'm think not not um, going to want to start keep talking about right now. But I should put together a a list. Yeah. Just keep that available. Yeah, a little annotated list. I like that idea. Other thoughts? Seems all this stuff is coming out of the like US and maybe Europe. I mean, is there much of this kind of thinking going on in China, Latin America, Africa? There um there is not much going on in China that's getting published by way of theology. There's a lot of, of, of activity on the ground, some of it's Christian in meaningful ways. Um, but Korea is incredibly alive with uh, Christian... Korea. Korea. South Korea, of course, with, with Christian institutions. It's the most Christian nation in, in Asia. Um, 40% Christian, and the, the major universities are all uh, started by missionaries, and you spend, I spend time there because a lot of my students at, at Drew are from Korea, so I, you know, I was just back for a week in, in uh, October, which was interesting because that was, it was early November, and it was like right before Trump was going to come. <laughs> So I was able to march with a demonstration, and they asked me to speak. It was, I think it was the first time in my life I actually spoke at a political demonstration. <laughs> That's not my style, but it was fun in front of the American embassy, or at least as close as the cops would let us get. <laughs> and I was saying, I think when you come and you protest against Trump, maybe wave an American flag, too, because he's really dangerous. <laughs> They had all sorts of signs on the main streets of Seoul saying, no silly Trump, no war. 
Silly draft award. I loved it. But in terms of, of um, theological works, you know, there were huge waves that came out of Latin America in the 80s and the 90s, and that's a little quieted, but still, uh, the work of Ivona Gabara, I just find indispensable for an eco-feminist uh, Latin American liberation perspective, and Leonardo Boff for the combination of, of liberation theology with its strong revolutionary political hope with a Teilhardian, Teilhard de Chardin, a cosmic mysticism uh, that then also became very ecological. Nothing from the Vatican. Hmm? <laughs> Nothing from the Vatican. Nothing from the Vatican. Oh, I think, I think this Pope is sent from God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> feminism, feminism aside, you know, I, I'm a, a big fan of, of Pope Francis, and um, I wrote an essay on it. My, my old advisor, I love him. You know, I feel very young for 65 because my advisor's still so vibrant and alive at 93. You know, so that's a very fortunate thing. So I always feel like I'm, you know, I'm still a student. It's a nice trick. So I thank him for <laughs> staying alive. He's going back to China in October. He has 70 Chinese with him right now. He's behind the whole movement uh, of their 30 centers for process thought in mainland China. So this is an effective process theology that's interesting and practical. Uh, they don't talk about God in China. They make connections to Confucianism and Taoism, but they mostly talk ecological civilization, which is a phrase that is in the, in the, uh, the Chinese constitution as part of their commitment. And it does seem like Premier Qing is, um, Xi, is, is, perhaps seriously open to it, despite his dictatorial tendencies. Ecological. Civilization. So John Cobb has been going over there and saying, please don't go the American way. Please don't, don't continue to push all of your peasants, your, your farmers off of the land into these new cities that are carbon humped. And, and please don't then follow the way of American agriculture, which is hyper... CO2 intensive, that your, your, far, your village people, your farmers, your rural people know how to grow in an, their crops in an environmental way, you know how, how shallow the topsoil of China is. Uh, I mean, it's not going to, it wouldn't survive the, cha the change that was underway. And it's interesting because he's been making that case and people were just like listening because he was saying, don't be like America. That was a good way of doing it. Um, and he got a, he was actually quoted a year ago with approval by President Xi. Uh, so he wrote me an email the other day saying, uh, you know, at 93, Catherine, I can brag a little bit. Like, I ne he said, I never expected to become an icon. <laughs> In fact, I always wished that, you know, the things I took seriously would be taken a little more seriously than they have been. But in China... It's like thousands of people want to get their picture taken with me. <laughs> he says, of course, they'd rather get their picture taken with me than really listen to what I might have to say. <laughs> but there's influence going on, and he's going back. I think he'll be 94 by then uh, in, um, in the fall. 
So it, you know, little odd veins of, of hope and different ways that theology can enter into secular politics. They are radically secular politics that have a chance. But uh, it's a chance. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you speak to Africa, and I know you didn't mention um, Africa, but during my time in South Africa, I, I took a, a few like philosophy and um, theology courses at a university there. Oh, where was that? At the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Wow. Uh, on the East Cape. Uh, and something that I found, I know, I mean, the thing about Africa, it's a huge diaspora of 54 plus countries and counting. Um, but... It's really interesting when we think about theology in um, post-colonialism, right? Because right now, uh, Africans all over the diaspora, although there's a lot of tribalism and xenophobia that divides Africans, yeah. uh, this they're having a new theologic, theological identity, like uh, post-colonialism, because you know, have to understand like theology was the driving force that you know instituted. Uh, colonialism yeah. and ripped folks away from their land and all of this. Uh, so a lot of them are working on recreating theology with Christianity, with all of the theologies that they kind of inherited with the colonial process, but also infusing their own roots. So it's yeah. really interesting what's going on across the diaspora of um, folks that are like theo theologians from the diaspora that are working on creating this new air of thought that is um, autonomous to mm. folks that have been colonized. I think this is really important. So, um, one theologian I, I feel quite close to now is is from Uganda and Congo, it's a Catholic priest, uh, Emmanuel Katongole. So here's someone I'll recommend the books of. In this K A T O N G O L E, Katongole. Uh, and his most he writes a lot, but he's not in Africa, it's the diaspora. He's a professor at, at Notre Dame. Uh, and his most, the, 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 I think it's the most recent book. There's another one coming out. But it, it, it is uh, Born from Lament. And it's a theology of, of hope um, for Africa. And he, he goes back and spends every summer in, in U Uganda, Rwanda, Congo, where there are levels of just unbearable uh, trauma that people have survived. And he works in the camps. I mean, Uganda's come to a very different place, um, uh, very welcoming of immigrants, for instance. So a lot has changed, uh, but there are populations that have gone through un unbearable horrors. But his book just so beautifully weaves together stories from contemporary Africa, stories, characters, and a lot of like popular music, but also newly written church hymns to show that there's a, there's a tradition of public lament that is deep in Africa, precedes Christianity, but then it comes into these the, into into the art forms and the songs and the lyrics, and he shares a lot of that. And you know, and there's songs, even a church song that that shares what it's like to, as a as a 12 year old, watch your mother 
raped in front of you and then be given a gun and said, either you shoot her or we shoot you. What does it mean? To so uh, anyway, that's one of the songs. He, uh, yeah, right. No, it's not kidding around. Um, and he, and yet he's saying it's because there is this tradition of lament that there is hope. It's getting expressed. And then the wonderful thing he does is connect it to the Book of Lamentations in the, in, in the First Testament. And the whole tradition of lament that is deeply biblical, but that somehow Christian civilization, imperial, colonial Christianity, really repressed. Like, you shouldn't. I, mean, I, I remember hearing this from, from the pulpit at a, at a funeral of someone, a young man who had died, who I deeply admired and cared about, a colleague. And the sermon was, you know, you, if, you're, if you're Christians and have faith, you have no reason to grieve. He is in heaven with the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's the drivel that so many Christians have gotten, which has almost nothing to do with either testament. Anyway, Katongo, I guess, right at that, and, and shows then the, the, the political theology implicit in, in this work of lament and hope. Just one example. I've gotten to know him from a particular project I'm involved in, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. We had a conference uh, on Africana studies and religion a year ago at, at Drew in our transdisciplinary theological series. The next one will be political theology in March. Please come. But um, yeah, there was rich discussion around this. I think there is there is a discourse in which, and, and my colleague Kenneth Noir from Ghana is strong. In the, I mean, there is a way in which uh, it's appropriate to say that that anyone who's who has ancestry that has that has that is claimed ancestry that comes from Africa can then claim to be part of the African diaspora, and and that's not necessarily a matter of unity, but at least of, of some kind of, of alliance, some kind of solidarity. <laughs> but it's it's bottomlessly complex. But race is but that's a big part of the problem is just getting getting that point made that you made, just the sheer complexity of it. Because what what racism does is totally simplify, right? Everything is white and black. What could be simpler? <laughs> and it's belying that that really threatens the whole the whole system that is now um, sovereign. <laughs> yeah. And a word for those of us who visit the dissolute, for visit that nihilism. I mean so we sometimes go there, guys, <laughs> in our group. We sometimes visit that. You know, there's those days. You know? Sometimes visit the... Yeah, when we just feel like it's all falling apart. And when there's nothing left to hold oh, on to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we visit that. We, we go Good. there. It, it, it's, it's but that's a great way of putting it. You visit it. You, you don't live there. You don't get stuck there. Oh, it's really important to visit nihilism right now, isn't it? And, <laughs> I was doing, I, I, I was, again, I have a couple of places in my book where I'm really like, hope, 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 uh, as I was going through with this absolutely final revision where I'm not allowed to add much. Um, I was still like saying, a, you know, a lot of really thoughtful people won't do hope anymore, <laughs> but we need to distinguish hope from optimism. <laughs> they, aren't, they aren't at all the same thing. <laughs> Hope is rigorous. The prophetic hope was based in unbearable catastrophe. 
and utter improbability, optimism is a, is a superficial like, capitalist, you know, know-it-allness. It'll all be, it'll all be fine. But it's like you have to really make a case for hope right now because a lot of thinking people are giving up on it. So I, it's good to just recognize that and work with it. Because <laughs> it's true there's no reason for optimism, but that's not to say there's no reason for hope. I'm really enjoying all this conversation, these questions, but I bet there's some other thoughts that don't, you know, they don't have to be organized or <laughs> they don't have to be questions. They could be comments. They could be outbursts. They could also be silence. <laughs> I have a question. You mentioned uh, before about uh, your kind of like view of like, you know, apocalypse and stuff, would you be willing to elaborate a little bit more on that at all? Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a thug to you, <laughs> um, Yeah, so the, the first paragraph that I've written for the book that I'm starting, <laughs> I'm not much beyond the first paragraph, but it's like I go in through clouds, and um, the Messiah arrives on a cloud in, in chapter mm -hmm. one of the book of Revelation, right? So you go in clouds, very cloudy, wild clouds, and then this, this head appears, and it's all, it's all cloudy. And that's the second chapter. The Messiah appears with white, woolly hair, white-headed. So uh, that doesn't mean white skin, it, not at all. It means shockingly white hair and beard, white, woolly. The hoary Messiah and the whore of Babylon. That's later. <laughs> but, but, but here it's just this white, white woolly, so it's like cloudhead Messiah. And, and then uh, the Messiah appears at ch chapter 4, 5, as a lamb, all white wool. And that's how the Messiah appears for the rest of the book of Revelation, except in one final scene. But even the very final scene, the marriage to the New Jerusalem, it's the lamb with the marks of slaughter. So I'm coming at it at a very strange angle, like this white woolly cloud. The cloud is, for me, related to the, the, the cloud of the transfiguration in which Jesus powwows with Moses and Elijah, you know, the ancestors. Um, and, then it be, and then the cloud on Mount Sinai in which... God appears to Moses, and that becomes the cloud in Gregory of Nyssa in the apophatic tradition that then we hear about as the cloud of unknowing, and Kuza's cloud of the impossible. So I'm bringing that cloud of unknowing and mystery there to interpret the book of Revelation again. And then this, this, woolly, this woolly lamb cloud, Messiah, <laughs> with the marks of slaughter, it's very interesting, given that you have such uh, belligerent imagery as well. Uh, but it's a vision, the book of Revelation is a vision uh, a lot like that of Daniel, uh, dealing with one empire after the next. Egypt, Sumer, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, I think I've forgotten, oh, the Medes in there. Have you ever tried reading the book of Daniel cover to cover? <laughs> I just did it last week. Oh, wow. 
it finally, it get, and, and it's like the author is also feeling it's too hard. It's like a compressed vision of people who didn't have, you know, a whole lot of historical archives available to them. But it, it's a compressed history of one empire after the next, kind of coming in in vision form for Daniel. And, and that's, the, that's the vision that John of Patmos uh, is inheriting and working with, and for him, the, the the frightening empire is, of course, the Roman, which is about to launch into really bad persecutions of Christians. It hadn't quite when he was writing, but he seems to have anticipated it. And so there's a lot of bitter and violent imagery, but it's like he's he's communicating what it means that the earth, the world, is in our world is in the thrall of these evil empires that are utterly about greed. And that's why even as this ancient feminist, I'm going to use the whore of Babylon image. My friends write books about it that just denounce this book as, the mis as misogynist. Oh, I think my book did too. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, the whore, because we don't use whore language that way anymore, it's terrible. But um, in its context, it's, it's the most insulting thing you could say to the empire, and Babylon, the whore of Babylon is code for Rome, and it's, the code is very clear, the seven hills is very clear. So it's the, it is understood by scholars, on the whole, to be the most explicitly anti-imperial text of the ancient world. And I don't think we get that, because we so much get the, the apocalypse through fundamentalism and its own kind of weird imperialism. I mean, and it was the fundamental, it was really apocalyptic fundamentalism that merged with the political right under Reagan and, and the whole, it launched a whole new stage of American imperialism, right? So it's, it's the most deformed book of all time. But my interest here is in saying, yeah, we can't forget that, how badly it has been abused and used. It's also the source of all the Western revolutions. There are three volumes by the great um, East German Marxist. He had to flee East Germany for his life and ended up in, in West Germany, in Tübingen, because um, he wasn't quite Marxist and atheist enough. But he's a Marxist atheist. And in his three volumes, he shows that uh, all of the Western revolutions, democratic, ours, you know, in France, and then the different socialist revolutions, he's, he shows they're all... They're all coming out of what he calls the Christian social utopias that are apocalyptic. They all use apocalyptic imagery. So I studied that in my 1996 book, and and like the early women's movements, the, the suffrage movements, emancipationist movements. They're all using all kinds of apocalyptic imagery. Uh, what was that German's name? Ernst Bloch, B-L-O-C-H, and yeah. it's the principle of hope. That's the, the scholar that uh, Moltmann draws from in his book on hope, right? It is, because Bloch uh, was given refuge and a job in Tübingen while Moltmann was a young theologian there. So his theology of hope is, is very much drawing from Ernst Bloch's Marxist atheist, but all too biblical uh, principle of hope. I mean, it's much too biblical. That's why he had to flee 
uh, from East Germany. But so to get that it's not just reactionary movements that draw on the book of Revelation, it's, it's all the revolutionary movements, you know, that see things as coming to a great uh, and somewhat catastrophic struggle of a climax in order to come into the New Jerusalem. Uh, it, it, it's not nice. That's not the point. It's saying something about the history we've had. Uh, and, you know, the reason I've wanted to dip back into it now so deeply is because the other thing about it, in addition to its anti-imperialism, is this. It's a very ecological book. It's, always, like, it's very specific. Like when, when the seventh seal is opened, you know what happens? I mean, it's one-third of the trees of the earth burn, and one-third of the grass of the earth burns. We've already done that. Uh, and then, next verse, a third of the life of the seas dies. A great burning mountain falls into the sea and poisons one-third of the sea. It's a great burning mountain. Well, I don't think the book of Revelation is predicting anything. That's not what prophecy does. It doesn't predict the future. The future isn't set. It's open. But it reads patterns. It intuits patterns. And, and I'm hearing intuitively something like, there's this heat. There's this warming. There's this wrong, fiery warming and the mountain is falling into the sea. Well, yes, the glaciers are falling into the sea. And they're going to drown out our coastlines. And we're going to have hundreds of millions and of Rome, refugees. Rome, Rome was a republic that turned into an empire. Yeah. And then, uh, not too long after it turned into an empire, the emperor became a madman. <laughs> Let's keep going, parallels. Let's yeah, keep going. <laughs> right, that, and Caligula, right. <laughs> Yeah, the parallel. So, but I don't want to become a fundamentalist here and say, no, it wasn't all those other periods where everyone thought the book of Revelation could be applied. It's my period that John thought most, from my ecological, social perspective. I, really, I don't want to make that mistake. So I'm going to keep saying every other sentence in my book. Uh, I'm not saying he predicted this. I'm saying there's, there's a, a, a really interesting resonance it's like what he was intuiting, what he was reading, was that this kind of imperial power that locks in the world uh, is, is fiercely greedy as well as cruel. And that's the Whore of Babylon, right? It lists out, what, about 15 luxury cargo items. I mean, it's great detail um, because the merchants, the, the merchants of the earth and the sea sea merchant captains of the earth all wail and, and cry when the whore of Babylon burns. Um, they're all mourning. And then, they, and then John lists out the products that they were shipping around the world, so specific economically. The gold, the silver, the purple dye, the olives, the olive oil, the wine, the slaves. He lists it. He's it's it's a de it's an it's a it's it's an intuition about global economics, imperial economics. Now we call it neo-imperial economics, and it's an intuition that 
that that brings that that system turns on itself between its power, the beast, and its I want to say its economy, the whore, turns on itself in great chaos. But that but that this this catastrophe of of greedy power uh, is destructive of huge swaths of of the earth, the non-human earth, as well as the human. That's an incredible intuition to have 2,000 years ago, when for most people it would be inconceivable that human beings could adversely affect the earth, you know? So this is kind of why I need to, I need to tap it. <sighs> well, speaking of uh, the beast, <laughs> What does process theology at all have to say about the evil, you know, the prince of darkness, and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> oh, that's not evil. That's a small Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard any mention of it tonight, so I just thought I'd have to. You haven't? Well, sort of. Well, let me say it a little more loudly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly process theology does not have a simple dualism good and evil. It understands that um, that human beings are extremely complex creatures and that our good is going to be inflected with, with self-righteousness and greed and evil and our evil is going to be partly generated by understandable motives. So, right, it understands that we're all complex morally uh, and none of us are, are pure. Uh, but in process theology, God is the Lord to the good. It's, it's different in that way, say, even from Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich, who is a, another, a, a great theologian of the mid-20th mid century, and where you have a kind of relative, where uh, God is, as with much theology, beyond good and evil. And that can create a great sense of depth. Uh, and get us free of our moralisms. But this is different. I mean, with process theology, God is really luring for the greater good. So the God is offering lure, possibility, to each of us each moment in process theology. Now, sometimes I don't like the way it gets, it's almost like God is sending a little memo to each of us. It's, it's not like that. But it's like this, the spectrum of possibilities uh, that are in this primordial aspect of God uh, are are enmeshed are enmeshed relevantly in each of our moments of becoming that there is a divine calling to us not just like at the beginning of your life like God calls you to be a minister or God calls you to be a Probably not a capitalist, but God, anyway, God calls you. Uh, hmm? But uh, it's not just a once and for all calling. That's not process theology. It's that God is always calling, uh, and not just in an abstract way, but with a specific sense of what's possible at this moment, which might be very limited. But there's something possible, something always, more, and it's the good. But there's always the freedom too. too. There's the freedom. Oh, God won't impose, God will not impose the good, because then it wouldn't be good, right? It would be, it would be coercion. It, 
if it's not a, if it's not a, a a freely embraced good, how is it good? So, is there any thought to the source of our wanting to go away from that and delve into power Satan and, and all? I think I think process theology. Process theology is more likely to go Darwinian than satanic, and you know, and say that there's a lot evolutionarily that inclines us uh, to uh, to self to self protection and to uh, uh, and to any violence necessary in order to protect our own, and that that in a human complex in which great social structures are evolved uh, with complexity uh, can be really, really evil. We can really amplify that instinct for survival and self-protection uh, and power, which in itself is not evil. In itself, it's what differentiates us a, cer a certain a certain drive of, of self-assertion, right? I mean, and it's interesting, it's, if you're a white guy, it's hard even to say that these days, but somehow as the Nietzsche, the will to power, you know, that was okay for radical males then in the 19th century. But, uh, you know, but, but for feminists, it's, it was really important for us to learn to tune in to a kind of, of power drive we thought we would do it differently, and sometimes we do. But obviously, even for white guys, there's an appropriate use of the of of that of that self-assertion that can be aggressive, but that does something new, that creates something, that takes risks, that pushes against resistance that refuses to simply conform to what always has been, that wants novelty, right? It's dangerous, though. You hear the danger in it. It can easily lead to, to, to violence and, and greed uh, or, or just a form of, re of edible revolt. So I think in process thought, it, it's that the impulse, the, the creativity is basic in the universe in process thought. That's like the, the principle of, the ultimate, <laughs> and God is an ex is like a personification of that principle, and that that creativity is what it's about, and that's not just morality. No, it'd be nice if we all were in touch with our creativity and our potential and all that as young kids, and we're all growing up successful, you know, and we're building on all those possibilities and really succeeding. But when you, it's we don't all. We no, we mostly connects. don't. We mostly don't. Or we succeed and we completely degrade our own creativity, right? We make our creativity into a commodity. And, you know, in process thought, the greater the creativity, the greater the relationality. Uh, I mean, the more selfish the creativity is, the more, the more petty it is, the more diminished. It's not absent. Uh, but a great creativity is a, is a world-transforming creativity. But isn't there a necessity for that great creativity to uh, cultivate a certain solitude 
that is not simply just merging with our relations in a very <laughs> obvious way, right? Yeah. Oh, I think that's crucial. I mean, it's because we're so relational that we need a lot of solitude. I mean, you know, in the Myers-Briggs, I'm a, a quite extreme introvert, so I know about this. Um, but it's because our relationality is intense that we, we need solitude in which to discern it, to discern between relations, to enrich the relations. If we don't have solitude, we have nothing to offer relationally. We just get canceled out. We just become, we just become homogenized. And that's the danger with re- relationality. But it's a misunderstanding. That's when relationality gets mistaken for, for, uh, for homogeneity, for uniformity, for you know, like just being one. Relationality is much more difficult. It's negotiating all the differences, and to do that, you you need to grant yourself that that solitude, even in the midst of a group like here. You know, but this is an interesting kind of group because you all have time to be silent and reflect. I have a little less, but um, <laughs> but I accept that as a, <laughs> my burden to but he, <laughs> my cross to bear. But, you know, I mean, I mean that there's a luxury about discussions where you can be a, a little solitary in your reflection and then come out of that space. And of course, I do too. I, I, I'm I'm on a research leave right now, as I mentioned, so I, I'm having gobs of solitude, and I'm coming out of that. But I think this is something we really need to help get out there because, um, right, a lot of times more progressive, politically responsible views are, you know, all about community and sociality, and they forget that without a real attention to solitude and to difference, the, the collectivity goes, it goes stale fast. Thank you so much, Dr. Keller. Really appreciate you. Well, this has been a great discussion for me. One of my favorites in recent history. Thank you. You're awesome. (laughs) And I'd love to come back. Maybe we'll talk about my new book when it's out. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. Political Theology of the Earth. It'll be out in... (laughs) It's going to be really... It's going to be like half the length of this one.